Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that won Berry South, even if it took 14 months to count the votes. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner with Propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. It's been quite a staggering 14 days in British politics. We've maintained a dignified silence, Steve, but we, we thought we'd come out of hiding uh, because the reputation of our Prime Minister has taken a bit of a battering and completely changed. And this has happened quite a few times in the recent past. So we thought we'd look back at those times and think, what can we learn from those moments? How is this crisis at the moment similar to those, but also, and more hilariously, how is it so much worse than those? So I think it's hard, isn't it, Steve, to put into words quite how terrible the last few weeks has been for our Prime Minister. And I suppose to try and properly show the gravity of the situation, it can only really be done by using a cricket reference, can't it? Of course, Corey, yes. This is obviously the uh, the only way we can make this comparison. Something, actually, it's a, an episode that, if you like, bookends the Partygate scandal. An even bigger scandal, which was the England cricket team's performance in Australia in the 2021-22 Ashes series. I want to have a bit of a talk about England's batting coach in that series. It's Graham Thorpe, the former Surrey and England batsman, as no doubt you and our listeners are very well aware. Obviously, yes, I'm, I'm very familiar with his, his, his work, clearly. Very nuggety left-hander, if you remember from back in the day. And he was batting coach for this England team in a series in which the average run, Steve's already g- given up, um, the average run per wicket of this England side was 20.21. Now that might sound a lot, Steve. That's actually the lowest since 1890. In the last two tests in the four innings, England didn't reach 200 in any of those innings, which 200 is a mediocre score. It's not even reached 200. We are talking... Imagine the evilness of Phil Woolas and apply that to incompetence. And you're sort of almost at the level in which we need to be thinking about in terms of this incompetence. After England humiliatingly lost the fifth and final test match, Graham Thorpe, with a lot of England and Australian cricketers, went back to the hotel in Tasmania to have a post-series drink. Except cricketers being cricketers and Australians being Australians, they were drinking till six in the morning. And Graham Thorpe, lit a cigarette inside a hotel in Tasmania, which it turns out breaks Tasmanian law. So nice, fun, obscure fact for our friends on the podcast. And this meant the police had to come and sort of disperse the gathering and basically, you know, bit late, lads, you go home, don't you? Graham Thorpe, the bat- the England batting coach of the most infamously rubbish batting side in history, filmed the police dispersing this gathering of cricketers for reasons... It, not even Sue Gray would be able to write a report about to try and understand the, the motive of it. It was an unwise thing to do. And so for all of these reasons, Graham Thorpe and his role is in quite serious jeopardy. And yet, Steve, Graham Thorpe still had a better week than Boris Johnson did. Very serious. Wondering where the segue was going to be. 
<laughs> I think we'll agree it was worth the wait. Oh, oh clearly, yeah. I'm just looking at the, uh, the recording time right now. <laughs> but actually, this is the edited version. The original version, listeners, was eight hours, 37 minutes. Uh, but yeah, Johnson's not had a good couple of weeks, has he? <laughs> then where to begin? Where to begin? It's the changing strategy, which is the, the interesting thing. It's kind of, kind of gone all over the place from there was no party to I didn't know there was a party to I thought it was a work event to I didn't know that a work event was against the rules. What we, I suppose, can try, what we're going to try and do, I think, is bring a sense of perspective because what is clear in Boris Johnson's approval ratings, what's clear in the poll results, what's clear in the public mood is that something fundamental has shifted in the reputation of Boris Johnson. And moments when reputations of Prime Minister shifts, I mean, there's a few different ones that we were thinking about before recording this. So the three that sort of stick in our minds, so the reputation of John Major and the Conservative Party generally after Black Wednesday, after the UK has to leave the ERM and the Tory reputation for economic competence collapses. You've got the reputation of Gordon Brown after the election that never was in 2007, when Brown uh, thinks about calling the election, backs out of calling that election, his personal ratings tumble and never really recover. And then you've got the more recent example, I think, of Theresa May and the 2017 election, in which she starts out like uh, the new Iron Lady and ends up on a scrap heap. And I suppose there's a few different angles, aren't they? I think something that maybe links those three with Johnson, or certainly I think it links Johnson with the more recent examples of May and Brown, is it's prime ministers who are sort of found out to be something that they're not. So Gordon Brown, the election level was in 2007. You have Brown sort of trying to run, this is the sort of Steve Bridges view, you've got Brown trying to run as the sort of apolitical father of the nation. Um, guiding Britain through the sort of foot and mouth crisis, through the terrorist attacks, appointing people like Digby Jones into his cabinet, trying to make himself look above politics when at heart he was quite a tribal, like Labour party political figure. That is exploded in that election because Brown ends up looking like he's trying to call an election for party political gains and then has to drop out. Ends up in this ridiculous position where he's trying to say, well, I would have won the election, but I didn't call it anyway. For Brown, the election that never was was definitely a, 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 a turning point. Um, for, for how the, the, the public viewed him. It, it demonstrated that clearly he was a, a, a political animal and a political beast um, because he went from positioning himself rather as I'm doing what's right for the country um, and I'm above all of the, the this, this day-to-day fray and above all of these things that in particular Tony Blair was famous for um, as well, which I think is a, a major part to uh, uh, kind of add to anything to do with mm. Brown is that so much of his um, positioning was designed to be in some ways, the opposite to Blair. Blair, obviously, very stylistic, very spin-heavy. The way that um, Brown positioned himself was substance over style. Not Flash, just Gordon. Indeed, yes. Imagine Prime Ministers being referred to by their first name, Steve. It wouldn't happen on this podcast. (laughs) No, absolutely not, no. You you interrupted me before I made the not Ming, just merciless about Ming Campbell. (laughs) Did people actually say that? They did in the Lub Dams. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think anyone has something. No, no, definitely not. Um, by the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, so with Brown, you you had this this image that he's tried to build up over over the years as shadow as shadow chancellor and then as prime minister. Which the minute he basically chickens out of holding that election after 
effectively announcing it already from, from what I can remember. Everybody knew it was kind of going to be a thing. Um, and like, and the papers were kind of talking it up, knowing that that's something it was like, this was likely coming. Then to suddenly do a complete vault face and just back out of it simply because it, uh, it looked like it might not have gone as, as well as they were hoping. Um, because uh, I think it was, uh, it was over like inheritance tax. Um, was 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 the issue that um, Cameron and Osborne were kind of going heavy on at the time, and it was a, a part, a major part of like Labour's agenda at that point. David Cameron's speech at the Tory Party conference. I think yeah, there was a poll in the uh, marginal seats that I think would say that Brown would win, but by a majority of about thirty. And I suppose you look back now and think, well, actually, like we would have killed any government really, apart from maybe this one, would have killed for a majority of thirty. Yeah. But at the time, I think it would have been seen as a bit of a failure because, again, in that time, you were used to governments having quite big majorities. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but yeah, and that, but that kind of political calculation of oh, it's not necessarily where we are now, and, and everything meant meant that Brown's like where he was trying to present himself as this no nonsense, non political figure just evaporated, um, and suddenly everyone saw him for what, what he had always been, which was a political animal. Like he's a politician, of course he's he's, he's going to be political. Yeah, well, and, and, a, and a politician that's labour to his fingertips, and I don't, that is in no way, of course, meant as a criticism, but it's more that is who Gordon Brown is. He's yeah. steeped in the history and traditions of the Labour Party. Absolutely, he's not. Uh, sort of, he's a very tribal figure, and with Theresa May, I think again, it's it's trying to present herself as something that she wasn't, trying to sort of present this cult of personality against someone who's quite a shy and retiring figure. I think that the quip at the time was that they were trying to build a personality cult about someone that's not got a personality, but that entire sort of strong and stable. Then you mix it with the U-turns. We talked about it a lot of the time. We talked about it a bit since, but the the shattering of May's reputation. And it never recovered from that election. Like it evaporated her standing, not just with the public, but perhaps more importantly with the with the Conservative Party as a uh, as a whole, and certainly the MPs. Um, given they went from a small majority um, under under Cameron from 2015 to um, a minority administration, and having to do a deal with the DUP, I feel like with May though, unlike with Brown, because Brown specifically tried to cultivate that image. I feel like May just had it thrust upon her more than anything else. I don't necessarily like so much of much of the comparisons to Thatcher and things like that weren't necessarily coming from her camp. Um, though obviously they weren't doing much to dissuade that because obviously it worked quite ben- beneficially for them in, in in the short term. It was coming from their own. MPs. It was coming from their um, from from the right wing press in particular, and you can see the exact same thing happening now with Liz Truss. That they're going through the exact same kind of thing of like trying to present um, Liz Truss as Thatcher two point um, and they're they're just desperate from seemingly to to have that that figure another Thatcher when in reality. No one is going to be another Thatcher, just like no one is going to be another Blair, or no one is ever go- is going to be another Attlee, you know, or, or a Churchill. Like those are, you know, defining politicians of their eras. That that desperate seeking uh, seeking those sorts of things and kind of falling back on that almost that nostalgia of those sorts of figures means that uh, certain politicians, especially when they're not necessarily as focused on 
delivering like a an image as Blair and Brown were, um, and Cameron to an extent as well, um, end up falling victim to basically brand building that other people are doing on their behalf, and then when they can't live up to it, calamity ensues. I think it's a really good point about trust, actually. And yeah, it's that very self-consciously bit of power dressing, bit of free market, right, red meat. With the mayor's Thatcher stuff, I feel like a lot of it was from Linton Crosby and his team, Mm. who's an interesting link, actually, into Boris Johnson, uh, because he's obviously Crosby was part of that 2017, get the barnacles off the boat, one message, strong and stable, and, and it just didn't fit the candidate it's almost you you have the message you wanted to run rather than the message that works for the person yeah but just as a bit of an aside note you've got crosby advising johnson now and it was interesting that when you had the the shift from tuesday to wednesday of boris johnson being interviewed by beth rigby head down um looking pretty ashamed of what he's done and then in pmq you know crosby seems to have come out and this is i think more um from, from Sam Freeman anyway, so his analysis of it, was Johnson being more combative. And that was seen as the, the sort of Crosby approach, never explain, never apologise. Yeah. Uh, so I think the, the reason then Johnson links in with Brown and May being found out to be some, a prominence of being found out to be something they're not, is because I think with Johnson, it's the hypocrisy. I think this is something that we should talk, it'd be nice to talk about more in, a, in detail in, in a different podcast, but it's the difference between sort of being a liar and being a hypocrite. Uh, David Rutzman's literally written a book on political hypocrisy. You've kind of got politicians like Johnson and Trump who incredibly economical with the truth. And in many ways, actually, uh, almost the audience is in with a joke. Everyone, there's a kind of nod in the wing. Well, all politicians are liars. I'm a liar. So it's fine. And actually what it's the hypocrisy is saying one thing, doing another, which seems to have done them in. With Trump, it's being booed by his fan base over not taking a vaccine and with johnson it's the um people knew that he was probably not terribly trusted but it's the fact it's the well it's the fact that while everyone else was in either a period of national lockdown or a period of national mourning he and his staff appear to have been on the piss (laughs) almost every night from from, from 6 p.m to 3am according to some of the reports breaking Boris Johnson's kids slides and all kinds of things like taking turns on the slide yeah and this is the uh, again it's another bit of an aside but this is when the the stories kind of hit hyperdrive hyperdrive isn't it when it's the colour of of everything which which is just briefed out which is just monumentally damaging yeah the fact that they're like diving down into the number 10's basement to deliberately hide and put the music on down there and dance the night away which is apparently what's hap- what happened like it's like well you know you're doing something wrong then don't you lads <laughs> the suitcase of wine as well the defining image the yeah and the uh the uh, beer fridge that was ordered and delivered the day before so i think that that that, that feels like definitely one thing it's yeah. the a prime minister being found out and i think actually i think the difference between johnson may and brown on this is okay brown had been chancellor for a good decade beforehand so it was obviously a known quantity may wasn't really but i think brown and may had very very good approval ratings historically very very popular and it basically i think they were sort of introduced and um the public liked them and then overnight collapsed like oh i don't know 
a team of English batsmen in the heat of the gather against the disciplined polling of Pat Cummins. Johnson hasn't really got that luxury. So even winning in 2019, Johnson was not a popular politician. In terms of his approval ratings, not terribly popular. Only really got a bit of a bounce in his approval rating when he was in the hospital for coronavirus and obviously was in, the, in intensive care seriously ill. And there was goodwill from them, but that has vanished now. You've got the situation where it's sort of gone from not massively great approval ratings, but about 50-50, and has sunk like a stone. And I think that's the interesting difference. Yeah, it, it, it really is. But I think, like, in, in many, many ways, I think it's just because Johnson, let's say, isn't... Like, Johnson's a known quantity, but also is a much more polarising figure um, in, in general, not just actually you know between like the left and the right but just even within his own party like the only reason he was tolerated was because people thought that he, he could win an election turns out he kept he, he was able to um although increasingly that's looking more and more to be less about johnson himself or more about just the fact that people just wanted to get brexit quote unquote done well and thank heavens it's done and we haven't got cues that dover and everything is fine oh yeah absolutely it's totally fine there's no issues whatsoever i i feel like Johnson's polarizing position and the fact that he was known primarily before before this really as the you know that 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 guy who hosted that really great episode of All I Got News for You and the mayor of London who like got stuck on a zip line whilst waving Union Jack flags during the Olympics. People had this view of him and just kind of going, you know what, he's a, he's a bit different. We'll run with it. Well, actually, in terms of revealing who he is, turns out he's not that at all. He's he's lazy. He's um, you know just not good at the job in general. Um, he like pretty much every kind of critique that was laid uh, laid at his feet um, over the past what decade or so has pretty much been proven to be accurate. <laughs> Yeah, I have zero sympathy with the Tory MPs. And we talked about this at the time, about the amount of Tory MPs who Johnson apparently looked them in the eye and promised things. And turns out that promise wasn't worth the carbon dioxide that was emitted when Johnson said it to them. But I think that moves on to the second thing about that when Prime Minister's reputations change very quickly, and that is the trashing of the brand. Yes. So with Johnson, you're right. It's the, it's the election winner, and it's that bulletproof figure that, any scandal just bounces off him. He's like, like Teflon Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was about to say like Blair when we referred to him as Teflon Tony before Iraq happens. <laughs> I think actually that is very similar to Black Wednesday, which we talked about. So that event is very singular in it doesn't just trash the John Major's reputation as Prime Minister. Uh, and mean that he, he's essentially in a, in a hole he can never get out of. It trashes the Tory party reputation for economic competence for a good two decades, well, decade and a half anyway, yeah. before the financial crash, I think. And it was some, it was major never recovered. It's a math, Labour having 15, 20 point opinion poll leads. And, and then also the, I think this is also similar with, with Theresa May. Well, it, with both Brown and May, I think, as we've talked about before, is that May's brand as the Iron Lady, God Brown's brand as that sort of apolitical father of the nation. Both of them go overnight. But I think with Johnson, and you've hit on this, it's, it's the fact that that reputation's gone within the Conservative Party. Yeah. 
and with those MPs, which is why you're seeing challenges. But they also think it has gone with those voters as well. Yeah, especially in those all-important red wall seats. Whatever that means anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't think we actually even mentioned as part of our part of the uh, the, the, the terrible weeks that uh, the, the Johnson's had the the defection of the MP for Bury South, uh, Christian Wakefield. Defections are very, very rare um, when it comes to it comes to politics, and defections from the Conservatives to Labour are even rarer. I think there's been like what like three in the entirety of political history based on based on some, I some mean, sort of reading I did it's not many there was only one in the 2019 election so it doesn't happen very often the thing I don't get about this and it's, it's slightly off point but also we've not talked about this yet and our, our listeners I'm sure are burning for an answer to this on, so on Tuesday evening every single political commentator seemed to suggest that those 54 letters or emails were going to be into Graham Brady's office and uh, there was going to be a leadership contest. Then on Wednesday afternoon, after after Christine Wakefield's defection was announced, then the consensus became, well, the defection appears to have helped Boris Johnson. Now MPs are saying, oh, it's gone a bit too far. It seems safe this time. We can't possibly rock the boat. And I do not understand how MPs could possibly say that a Tory MP defecting to Labour, as you say, a very rare event, is therefore a reason to keep Boris Johnson in office. It baffles me. I don't understand the logic. Latent tribalism, that's, that's all it is. It's like, it, it's one thing for, like, your own side to to, to, to criticise, um, and it's one thing to to have your own side being the ones to, like, effectively pull the trigger and, and, and uh, remove the, you know, the Prime Minister. But once you get into a position where it looks like the opposition is doing it, it becomes a question less of, well, less of kind of like loyalty to the leader, but loyalty to the party or the brand of the party itself. And I think that's kind of what's happened here with that defection, is that if if he hadn't defected, um, you'd probably get a, a bit more kind of uh, a few more letters coming in, and maybe by now we've had we we would have had the announcement that there's going to be a vote of no confidence. Who knows what mm. actually happens with that? Maybe he survives it, maybe he doesn't. But that vote would probably be happening. But with the defection, it becomes well. If something happens now, it makes it look like Labour are the ones that have somehow caused this, and that we are reacting and panicking to what they've done or what's what's happened then which then weakens in theory the the tory party brand overall now i think short term like it probably is good for um johnson's prospects to remain as prime minister though uh, as a result of the defection um because as you say it does seem like that tribalism has kicked in in some form maybe pe- people are at the very least slowing down the rate at which they submit letters and apparently some people have withdrawn them um, who who knows what what the truth is there other than the 1922 committee? Well, only Graham Brady. Yeah. yeah, but in the long term, worse for the for the Tory party brand and worse for the Tory party because now that there's a a greater chance that they're going into um you know the the local elections in May with Johnson as leader, which means they're which given the polling and his personal ratings means they're in for a much stronger kicking than they might otherwise have been. Um. Uh, the ballot box and yeah and it, it also just means that even if johnson goes before may because like sue gray report comes out what this week next week so at some point uh, in the next few weeks week, 
Yeah. Why don't you play Thorpe to light another cigar <laughs> to sort of flush it out? <laughs> but yeah, within the next few weeks, the um, Sue Gray report comes out. Now, maybe there, there's revelations in that which could do, do eventually do Johnson in. Um, and as a result of that, we have a new leader of the Conservative Party. But the problem is, they've rather than acting swiftly on this and actually just going, you know what, you've screwed up, you're gone. They've potentially just let it linger that little bit too long. And as a result of that, the damage is done. So maybe they do get a little bit of a bounce back in the polls, but there's a risk that that doesn't happen at all. And whoever does become the new prime minister is now fighting from a much weaker position than than they would have been if they'd all just decided, you know what, screw it. Like, you won us an 80-seat majority. Great, thank you very much. You're bad at being a prime minister. Go away. That's the thing, isn't it? So I suppose the premise of this episode essentially is that Boris Johnson's premiership's in a death spiral. Here you go. Um, uncontroversial opinion there for you listeners. But, but then, the, therefore, the point is, the only way of the Tory MPs uh, stopping the damage essentially is to replace Boris Johnson as soon as they can, really. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Brown wasn't replaced essentially because there wasn't really a credible contender and the economic crisis came along in which he was the only Prime Minister who could probably have acted against it. May totters on for a couple more years after 2017, but her number was up. Her, as you said, her political capital was, was shot. She couldn't really do anything. And I think Johnson's probably in that position too. The longer it goes on, the more that Johnson is there draining energy from the, the Tory party. I think I think it's worse for them. And you, you look at someone like Rishi Sunak, who's probably one of the front runners. Cost of living crisis is going to bite. He's a chancellor at the moment who has got popular because he gave, he's spent a lot of money on the furlough scheme. We know that's not his instincts. Yeah. And uh, even though this might not necessarily be be, be with his instincts as uh, as well, increasing taxes on people through a national insurance rise that's about to bite at the exact same time as the uh, cost of living increases that are coming through, and yeah, it's like I think there's polling already that's been done which basically shows that even under Sunak, the um, the, the, the Tories do not are not doing well enough in like the seats that really matter to maintain their majority. Um, like if you were to switch Sunak for Johnson now, like you probably uh, and, and then immediately hold an election, like you might you probably end up in a situation where the Tories are still the biggest party, just about, but they are a minority administration rather than um, having a majority of any sort. And the reality is, if 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 and this is before, as you say, all of these negative things are are coming potentially home to roost, and also. The part has happened outside his bedroom window. Yeah, you can't. Un- un- unless Rishi Sunak is the one that's been personally briefing all of these things and this news to people. Like, it's really hard for him to, to make a case that, oh, I didn't know what was going on here. Um, and even then, if he did, if he is the one that's briefing it or his team is briefing it, why didn't you say something? Like, you should have been making a case to the Prime Minister at that point in time saying this is not acceptable. Because that is actually something that a lot of people do do in their workplaces and will quite happily do in their workplaces and is necessary to do. So I think just to finish off, though, what I think makes this scandal worse, actually, than... Certainly than Brown and May. Maybe it's sort of on comparable, maybe, with Formation Black Wednesday. But it's it's the fact that this scandal also has revealed a lot about the political culture 
yeah. which which really seemed like normal procedure, but actually when most ordinary members of the public see it for the first time, are quite shocked and appalled by what happens. Yeah. Um, the thing that really stood out to me um, throughout, like the, the discussions of like the Downing Street culture for all of this, and to a certain extent, I think also the Tory culture as well, that's primarily Downing Street here, is like the the culture of alcohol consumption that seems to have, have emerged there, um, which uh, I, I found absolutely fascinating because, like, it's like I have worked in a num- basically in, in my current job and my last job. I worked uh, worked in offices where there was a beer fridge. So, like, alcohol was available for people to consume at certain points. Um, it was basically a case of if you were... So, like, at my last job, it was along the lines of if you were working late, you could grab a beer from the fridge because you're working late, you're putting in overtime. You know, like, this is a, a little thing just, just to make your life maybe that little bit more better whilst you're, whilst you're putting in some additional hours. Um, or it was available after like 4 p.m. on a Friday when we're starting to wind down, that kind of thing. Now, um, and this is something that's kind of really relevant, kind of like relevant to me because like so much of like the alcohol culture stuff that's come out of Downing Street is like in many ways the exact opposite of that. You've got people talking about having like long drinking lunches, like by getting by 11, uh, start in some instances starting drinking at like 11 a.m. and bits and pieces like that happening, which, um, you know, it's it's like even working in environments where there was that little bit of a, a drinking culture to to the work, including going down to the pub because we're like, when I used to work in the jewelry quarter of Skew Birmingham reference, um, we would quite often go for lunch to the various pubs or when I was working in Digbeth to the various pubs and things like that that were around and we would have a pint or two at lunch. No one really cared. Everything was fine. That is, to my mind, a, a healthy drinking culture within an office. Work still got done, but when we were relaxing on our own time or if we were staying late, we were able to have a, have a drink or something. That's not what's happening in, in, in Number 10 Downing Street. And so seeing that coming from a quite a like a better term liberal sector which has that kind of drinking uh, drinking culture attached to it when i talk about like marketing agencies and things like that it's very much a a a part of the the kind of the feel for it in in many ways it's so what, what what they're doing is so different to what we were doing and an awful lot of people won't even have what I had in working in these places. They will just see, well, we're not allowed to drink at work. Why the hell are these guys? And that, I think, is really where the damage of this culture, culture revelation comes from because they're just seeing it's... People associate drinking with having a good time. They don't associate it with work in any capacity. Um, And as a result of that, all they see when they say, that, oh, there's a drinking culture, is they're on the piss 24-7. which isn't necessarily accurate, but it gives the impression that they are out of touch, gives the impression that they are elites just doing their own thing. All of the things that are, as you said earlier, hypocritical to the message and the statements that they've given previously. Well, especially when this is during a period of lockdown or a period of mourning. So I remember at uh, NUT rep training years ago, there was um, a teacher who said, this is probably in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, that there were staff who would go to the pub on a Friday afternoon in a sort of way you've described and have a cheeky pint and then teach. I can't imagine teaching after a cheeky pint on a Friday afternoon, but 
digressing. Now, uh, at schools, you would have staff nights out and you could have staff leaving dues. You might have end-of-term parties. And you yeah, often they could get quite raucous. And I don't remember any playground equipment being damaged, but obviously shenanigans were probably took place. But none of that happened during lockdown. And it was pretty clear if the head teacher walked in, they wouldn't assume, oh, this must be a work meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And this is and this is the thing, like even going back to like what I say with the with like marketing agency culture, which has got a more liberal kind of attitude to, to alcohol in the office, like I don't think outside of like when you're whining and dining your client at a restaurant or, or something like that, I don't think I ever had a, a work meeting where alcohol was consumed. But again, and that's a different thing, isn't it? Because obviously in politics, there is that sort of blurring of work boundaries and life boundaries. And But again, it's if you are going out for drinks with people who you work with, that is very different to having a meeting with people you're working with. And that, so that I mean that, that that whole fantasy is wrong, really. I think for me the the that aspect of culture I, I can't believe we thought this would be a short one, but that aspect of culture that um, really ho- struck home for me is that the sort of revealing of sort of whips allegations of blackmail and, and various seats. Yeah. And I mean, there's always been sort of nods and winks to it. You know, House of Cards came out thirty odd years ago. There's references to it in, in Westminster with a sort of nudge nudge wink wink about money going to marginal constituencies. Um even that the thick of it as well is, is blackly cynical in, it, in its view, well that's not really part of the whip's office. But when you've got people like William Rag saying that Tory MPs are, are sort of being blackmailed, you've got again Christian Wakefield one of the side issues, one of the things about his defection, and then you have people saying, but how can we possibly have him taking the Labour whip when he voted against kids having free school meals, who then is interviewed and says, well, yeah, the reason I did that is because <laughs> the, the government basically said we're going to withdrawing funding for a school unless you do it. Yeah. Like, it, 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 it's like, this is the lesser of the evils I'm presented with. Um, and you know what, screw it, I'll go along with it just to try and actually do my job as a constituency MP. And eventually the guy may, has the straw that breaks the camel's back and goes, screw it. Well, and I think that this is a bit of a subplot in all of this, which is that 2019 intake, uh, the 109 group, as they called them, although it's 109 because they miscounted the number of gains that they had in 2019. So it might actually be 109 now that they've removed Christian Wakefield from the WhatsApp group. Um, but they, it's a group who probably didn't expect to be MPs. They obviously spend most of their time in lockdown, so weren't really socialised into the ways of the chamber. And a lot of them are sort of young and, and, and basically don't put up with the same kind of crap that previous MPs had. So it was Michael Fabricant, wasn't it? Yes. Replying to William Rag, who basically, basically literally came out and said, how is William Rag? What has he got against himself that might open him up for blackmail? What is he worried about being blackmailed about? Which is just, oh, it, it's so beautifully crap. Oh, you've, you've got nothing to uh, to fear if you've got nothing to hide. That's not kind of the, the point, especially when what's being used to blackmail you is not necessarily personal stuff. It's basically holding funding off from your constituency and basically saying, you do this or we don't give you the money to actually do your job. And this is horrific. And it's also... So 
I think that this is where it's actually, this is, it's so terrible for the government and, yeah. and British policy generally, but the government in particular, because it's almost like the sort of election that never was plus the expenses scandal happening at the same time. Because you've got things that we almost see, like intimidation by the whips was seen as part of the rough and tumble, certainly from what Fabrica is saying, part of the rough and tumble of British politics. But most people, I don't think, who are, uh, you know, watched all of the light entertainment shows based in British politics, I don't think realise the extent to which it goes on. And to have these revelations, when when you've obviously got, as you say, a culture of a government who is, um, look at the Towns Fund, for instance, you know, a lot of, um, or very, very political siphoning off of money to certain seats. So you've got unprecedented, I think, corruption and then straining the system as far as you could go plus this damaging culture on top of a prime minister reputational damage it's an absurd cataclysmic cluster wallace all happening at once it is absolutely ridiculous that all of this is kind of hit at the same time and it's it's having the 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 effect you would think it would especially after the drip the slow drip 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 of scandals stories all of which a number of which were also similarly related to hypocrisy and one rule for us one rule for everybody else like hancock or cummings and and everything else and it all just adds up and eventually there's a a big enough of an issue that people just go now you know what screw it we're done like we don't we can't support you anymore speaking of ridiculous cluster witnesses steve and i might pour ourselves another glass of wine and record an episode for our patreon subscribers who pay top dollar or bottom dollar to hear our high-quality hot takes. It's very true. And if you want to hear those high-quality and at this point possibly slightly tipsy um, hot takes, uh, you should head over to patreon.com slash notenoughchampagne, where for but a few pounds every month, you can gain access to these hot takes and uh, unique episodes that we record for our champagners over there. Uh, and yeah, just head over, join the conversation, and uh, hope to hope to see you. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed our logo. Follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Pucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. <laughs>